And you know, when you go trick-or-treating, you come back with a bag that may look like this, if you're especially ambitious. A whole sack load of candy. But in certain neighborhoods, you know, people aren't quite so generous, so you may have come with a bag like that. Well, one thing I want you to imagine is that, okay, now that you have gotten your candy on trick-or-treat, uh, now you have it all at home, and a friend comes over to your house to play. And while he's there, you're thinking, oh, man, I really want something from my candy bag. But you know that if you bring it out, that you are going to have to share. And so you're really not sure you want to do that. What are you going to do? I mean, you aren't going to be able to trick-or-treat for another 12 months. And this bag, especially this one here, is going to have to last that whole time. So are you going to share? What are you going to do? Now, what happens if you don't share? Well, if you bring the bag out and help yourself and don't share any with your friend, they're going to think, oh, you're either mean or you're stingy or you're just not a very good friend. So you're kind of in a bind. But, you know, if your candy bag looks like this and you have to share it, you know, there's just going to be less for you. So what are you going to do? Well, remember that question a lot of us are asked to ask ourselves, which is, what would Jesus do? And, of course, you know, the answer to that question, Jesus would share. So what's important to ask this morning is what motivates giving? Why do what Jesus would do? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to address in our text this morning. Why give? As we move into the season of thanksgiving and then into the Christmas season, which is the season of giving, why should Christians give to others? Why should we give to one another? And of course, what Paul is going to point our minds to in this text is the gift that God himself gave to us. It was a gift that was so enormous, so generous, so unlimited, that it sets a pattern for giving that we could never surpass. Even if we took our huge bag and shared it with all our friends, we could not outgive the gift that God gave. The Apostle Paul, as he speaks about this in our text this morning, he speaks about this act of grace, which is actually in the original just this act of giving that God did on our behalf. And so this morning, we are going to be called to give based on what we have received which is the richest and most wonderful gift that God could ever give, the gift of his Son. So this morning our reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, pardon me, chapter 8, if you have your own Bibles or if you pull one up on your phone, and we will be reading verses 1 through 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll be reading from the ESV, 2 Corinthians 8 beginning at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, 
their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word as we receive it through our ears and ponder it in our minds and take it to heart. We pray that you would teach each one of us how this word is to be applied in our lives. And as we move from the season of thanksgiving into the season of giving, we pray that you would help us to think of all that we have received by grace, and then to help us by grace to share with others. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, my parents taught me the importance of saving for a rainy day. I suspect that some of you may have had parents who did the same thing. Now my parents were missionaries, faith missionaries as they were called in that time, meaning that they had to raise their own support and then they would just live on what came in month by month. So there was never a lot of extra. In fact, when my parents retired, they did not own a house. And so my father started a business in order to accomplish that purpose. Now, I also, uh, like a lot of you, worked a lot of odd jobs when I was a kid. And my parents encouraged me to save money out of that, out of those jobs, even though I hadn't made a lot, and put it away for a rainy day, for a time when there would be some special need. Of course, as I got older, like a lot of you, I also learned about investing. And investing also is about thinking about the future and planning for it. Now, in the Bible, we read about a kind of Christian investing in various places and in the text that we have before us today. 
And this kind of investing focuses on meeting the needs of God's people as they pass through difficult times. I noticed as I came in that you have a Salvation Army uh, collection going on there. There's these boxes for Samaritan's Purse, so uh, you're thinking about that here. Now, when we invest in God's people, there's an unusual payback. And as the Apostle Paul continues uh, this text into the next chapter, he says that one of the most amazing paybacks that comes when we invest in God's people is that God gets praised. But then in the text that we mentioned this morning, or that we read this morning, he says there's actually another payback too. And that is if we share during our times of abundance with other Christians in need, that when our time of need comes, God is also going to work in the hearts of those other believers and our needs will also be met. So this morning we're going to reflect a bit on the investment advice that God gives us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now before we do that, we need to ask ourselves an important question. And that question is this, what are we trying to achieve with our savings and our investment? If we have put money away, what are we trying to do? And I think if we think just for a moment, we would have to answer, we're trying to secure the future. We're trying to make sure that at some future date, that we're going to have everything that we need. Now, we may not be saving for a life of luxury, but we just want to make sure that we will have enough. And then in the light of this, we need to ask ourselves a question. Is this possible? Is it really possible to secure the future? If we think about what Jesus said about storing up treasures on earth, do you remember the answer? He said, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. Now we might say, well, we don't have to worry too much about moths, rust, and thieves. We have our money in the stock market. We have it in a bank. Well, maybe we need to change the terms here and say, can we protect ourselves from what destroys hoarded wealth in our time? Can we protect ourselves against inflation and taxes and maybe big downturns in the stock market? Well, the Bible teaches, of course, that we cannot protect ourselves against everything that threatens our well-being in this world. So the Bible urges us to invest, not just for the near future, but also for the far future. We need to invest in what's more enduring than stocks, bonds, real estate, or even gold. And what can we invest in that's going to outlast all those things? What's the only eternal thing in this world? It's people, isn't it? Other people. Members of our family. Members of our church. Christians in other parts of the world. Other parts of, of our uh, country, even. So the Bible urges us to invest in people made in God's image because they are going to live forever. Now, there are two attitudes often associated with investing. I had a friend who was a huge stock market guru, and he says, what drives the markets are fear and greed. And so as we think about these attitudes, and we think about what, keeps, what may keep us from following the Bible's investment advice, it might be the same. We might be kept from doing this by either fear or greed. 
like bacteria that grow where there's a lack of air. Fear and greed grow where there's a lack of faith. Fear and greed grow best in our hearts when we don't believe God's promises to take care of us. And that is always the anchor of all the counsel that we have in Scripture, right? That we must trust in God to provide for the future. Now, these Christians who lived long ago, the ones the Apostle Paul references in our text, have something to teach us about making investments, spiritual investments, that is. These Christians lived in the northern, northern part of Greece, in the area called Macedonia. And generally, we know these Christians by other names, names that are used in other parts of the New Testament, especially the book of Acts. We know these Macedonians by the name of Bereans, Philippians, and Thessalonians. And in this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the, Corinthians, the uh, Christians living in Corinth, he highlights a generous spirit present among the poor Christians in Macedonia. Now, what was Macedonia's claim to fame? If you know a little bit of your history, you know that their claim to fame was Alexander the Great, one of the first great conquerors of the world who extended or who created a, an empire that reached from Africa to India. And why did Alexander do this? What was he motivated by? Well, very likely by fear and by greed. He wanted to secure his homeland. He wanted to make sure everything there would be safe, maybe on the fear side. And then once he started conquering, he realized his power to conquer, greed. Was Alexander able to secure his future? Well, if you know the story, you know that he died when he was 32 years old. So much for securing the future by establishing a world empire. Well, the Romans had conquered Macedonia by the time the New Testament was written, and in spite of uh, Alexander's great conquests, Macedonia was no longer an impressive or an important place. In fact, what Paul tells us about the situation of the Christians there suggests that the financial situation of the Macedonians and the Macedonian Christians was not good at all. Paul describes their situation as one of severe testing, one of extreme poverty. But they show us that we don't have to be wealthy to be wise about the money that God puts into our care. Now this may surprise us because we tend to equate financial wisdom with financial success. I mean, if some of us here wanted investment advice, would we really go to poor Christians in the inner city and ask them how they think we should use our money? Wouldn't we be more likely to consult someone like Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha, that has been such a success with investing? But Paul directs our minds this morning to the Macedonians. He uses the poor and afflicted Macedonian Christians in order to teach us how to be wise in the use of material wealth. The Macedonians weren't rich financially, but they were rich spiritually, and they knew how to invest for eternity. 
Now, what was the need in that time? What was the need that the Apostle Paul was uh, raising these funds for? Well, the Christians in Jerusalem had hit, had gotten in really hard times. There was a famine there. It was probably be related to uh, the political upheaval that was going on, uh, to the weather, obviously, persecution. And we know that in various places in Paul's letters, he references this offering that he was raising uh, for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. But an interesting thing is, is that the Apostle Paul's primary calling was not to be a fundraiser. In fact, he tells us in his writings that his chief calling was to preach the gospel. He was, his chief calling from God was to travel far and wide, telling people about the life, death, and the resurrection of Christ, to call them to faith in Christ, to turn away from sin, because spiritual poverty is much, is a much bigger concern than material poverty. Material poverty may give you a rough life in this world. Spiritual poverty, if you die without Christ, you are in serious trouble for eternity. And so that's why the Apostle Paul puts so much stress on those fundamental things. Repent from sin. Dedicate your life to serving God. Believe in Jesus. But the apostle, apostles in Jerusalem, when they first welcomed Paul into the leadership of the Christian church, said to him, as you go out preaching the gospel, Remember the poor. And Paul listened to their advice, and he wrote that he was glad to do it. Now, Paul's actions may surprise people who like to divide neatly between the preaching of the gospel and helping people in need. You know, this is a big debate down through the ages, a big debate in the evangelical church even over the decades. But if you read the New Testament closely, you see that the early church leaders could not make a neat division between those things. Right away, as they began preaching the gospel, remember right there in Jerusalem, as recorded in the book of Acts, there were needs among the widows in the church. And the apostles felt so overwhelmed by all those needs that they decided we need some deacons. And so they got some deacons to help with these financial needs. But then again, to show that you can't divide neatly between preaching and helping people in need, all of a sudden the deacons are out there preaching. Remember Stephen and Philip? Two powerful preachers that God was using to spread the message of the gospel. So Christians and their leaders always have to proclaim the gospel both in word and in deed, and when necessary, create divisions of labor. Well, the Corinthian church was an interesting church. They had a lot of gifts. They had a lot of good intentions. They wanted to show their Christian love by having an offering for the poor. But in verse 10, Paul says to them, you know, you've started something, but you haven't followed through. Here are his words. He says, in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. An emotional desire to give. You know, the kind that sometimes is raised in us, you know, we attend a fundraiser of some kind, or we hear about some big need. That emotional desire 
has to be followed by the harder work of actually giving. Good intentions have to be followed with good actions. And to help inspire the Corinthians, Paul tells them about the Macedonians, about those Bereans and Philippians and Thessalonians. He says, the grace of God motivated people who were living in extreme poverty and experiencing severe trials to give. It's an amazing example. Verses 3 through 4, Paul expresses his amazement at these Macedonians, their eager willingness to help despite their poverty and difficulties. In verse 3 he says, For they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. How does this happen? How are Christians who are experiencing severe trials and extreme poverty escape the grip of fear? How do Christians who are living in luxury escape the grip of greed? Paul tells us. He says, they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. The Macedonians put their future in God's hands. Then they put into practice what it means to be people of faith in God. The Apostle Paul told the Romans in chapter 8 that if we believe that Jesus conquered death, we have to be willing to believe that he is going to take care of us in whatever other circumstance that life can bring. So we can paraphrase verse 32 of Romans 8. If God didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, we can be sure that he will graciously give us with him all the other things that we need. But we have to entrust ourselves first to him, and then we will be able to help others without feeling that we're putting ourselves at risk. Now, the Corinthians were a church that excelled in many spiritual gifts. They excelled in faith, they excelled in speech, they excelled in knowledge, but they had failed to put into practice what they believed and talked about and knew. And so the Apostle Paul very lovingly urges them to show the sincerity of their faith by excelling in the grace of giving. Now the climax of our text comes in the middle of this passage. This was a feature of Jewish writing, to put the main point in the middle and not at the end. And what this does is it shows us that the example that we are to look to is not the example of the Macedonians, or at least that's not the ultimate example. The ultimate example of giving comes in what Christ has done for us, in his sacrifice, because it was Christ's redemptive love and sacrifice that motivated the Macedonians to give as they did. Jesus is the one who was rich as God, 
as God's son. And for our sake, for our eternal enrichment, for the giving to us of eternal life, he became poor. There's a very profound point in this. And that is, is that enriching others may impoverish us somewhat. I think the people who probably know this best are parents who have children with severe needs that require a lot of money. Maybe things not covered by insurance. Jesus taught the central lesson of our text in his life, death, and resurrection. If we want to bring blessing to others, it's going to come at a cost to ourselves. You know, we may love to sing about the salvation of the world. We may love those feelings that sometimes flood over us as we imagine a world where all needs are met and God's kingdom finally comes. But if we want to be a part of that, there's going to be a price. The generosity of God cost him the life of his son. And we shouldn't think that we're going to get off cheaply if we want to share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now after hitting this climactic note, Paul addresses a final question. Well, how much do we have to give? I mean, if the sacrifice of Christ sets the bar for this, it's pretty high. It's very interesting how practical Paul gets. He tells us that giving ought to be proportional to what we have. That was the whole purpose in the teaching of the Old Testament tithe, right? It's you give proportionally according to how you've been blessed. And so the Lord invites us not to give out of what we don't have. We are asked to give according to how God has blessed us. We're not being asked to give what's required for our own survival. In fact, that's why Paul tries to hold the Macedonians back. He thought they were giving more than they could afford. But he said they pleaded with him for the privilege of sharing in the needs of the saints. So Paul gives extended attention here to the fact that he's not trying to wring offerings out of people who are barely making it. He doesn't want us to relieve the needs of others at the expense of experiencing hardship ourselves. His point is, is that if we have enough, that we should share it. And then he uses this word fairness. He calls us to fairness. And by fairness, he means a worldwide Christian community where everyone's needs are met. He suggests to us that some Christians shouldn't go hungry while others waste money on frivolous things. Like a family, we need to give so that everyone has their basic needs met. And then Paul reaches back again into the Old Testament in order to make this point. He speaks about that manna which God had given to supply the needs of God's people. And he says, as it is written, he who gathered little did not have too little. 
or he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. One thing that struck me when I was serving as a missionary among the Haitians in the Dominican Republic, and then reading the news about or hearing about what was happening back among family and friends in the church here in the States was this. That too much abundance can do us harm. I would focus often on the poor Haitians who barely, they didn't even know where their next meal was coming from many times, earning a dollar a day, and I would just feel so sorry for them. And then I was getting the news back from the States about people having all kinds of health problems because of an overabundance of food. And so we need to spend some time pondering. He who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. Too much or too little can harm both body and soul. But sharing relieves suffering. Sharing removes the temptation to overindulgence. Sharing brings joy to everyone, both the givers and the receivers. So this morning I just want to conclude by remembering again what motivates this kind of giving, and that is what God himself has done for us. He has given us his Son. Christ became poor so that we would become rich. And it's this grace that ought to motivate our giving. That's why Paul says in verse 8, see that you excel in this act of grace. This is the correct response to the grace of God that we've received in our lives. And that is to turn and to help God's people and meet their needs. Verse 9, one more time. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning as we break bread together, we pray that we will remember this generous sacrifice, this complete giving and that as we think about the gifts that you have given to us, we pray that we may, out of gratitude for what we have received, share them as generously as you have shared with us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.